Thanks for checking out the Oasis Church podcast from Camden, Arkansas. Each week we share the message from our Sunday worship service. Join us anytime. More information at camdenoasischurch.com. Well, good morning as you are finding your seat. Um, if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, as you can probably tell, Brother Jamie is not with us this morning. He is in Benton with his family so that they can celebrate Holy Week uh, uh, with their own church family, and as they should. Uh, uh, well, this is a very special week to Christianity. This is the week that we remember Christ's entrance into Jerusalem and uh, the week that he spent there to finally be crucified and raised back to life on the next Sunday morning. Praise be to God. So it's good to see you all here this morning. Um, a couple of facts about Easter that you may not know about, but I think you should and are fun to know, especially if you're a, 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 a church history nerd like myself. Um, but the word Easter doesn't actually have anything to do with Jesus or Christianity or anything like that. Uh, well, some people uh, think, well, it comes from a German word that sounds similar to, you know, a word that we got from Latin that just means mornings and all this stuff, but that's still kind of a stretch. But most people just think that we stole the word Easter from a pagan holiday that, um, that just uh, celebrates the beginning of spring, which is, actually makes a lot of sense, considering that's what Christians did way back then. We would take pagan holidays that corresponded with our Christian holidays, and we would just kind of call them our own and say, well, they're ours now. Sorry. Um, well, here's another one. Uh, do you know why Easter is always a different date every year? It's a different date. Well, of course, you know, every day is a different date every year. But if you said that, um, th that, that it's, be it's the same time as the Jewish Passover, you'd be very close, and I'd still be very impressed. Um, but however, Passover always starts on the first full moon of spring. And at the first Christian council, they decided that since Jesus rose on the Sunday during Passover, then Easter should always be celebrated the Sunday after the first full moon of spring. That's why Easter is sometimes in March, and it's sometimes in April, and it's just kind of all over the place because it follows the Hebrew uh, a lunar calendar. Um, let's see. Uh, did I have any more facts? I don't believe I did. But uh, that doesn't explain really why uh, we, uh, it, you know, it always rains uh, during Easter in Arkansas. I don't think we'll ever quite figure that out. Um, I don't even know if there's rain on the forecast for next Sunday, but if I was a betting man, I would dress accordingly. Uh, so let's get into Matthew chapter 21 here. Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on, her, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. 
A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so let's stop there. So a little background that you may need for this passage. At this point in Matthew, Jesus is finishing up his earthly ministry. He has been traveling around with his disciples for about three years, preaching, teaching, doing miracles, doing all kinds of different signs. And now the time has come for him to fulfill his purpose for which he came. If you remember all the way back in Genesis from the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And by doing that, he would take away the serpent's power to tempt and separate people from God. And we see how in the covenant God made with David that from his lineage would come the Messiah and how he would be king over Israel. And this king would establish a kingdom which would last forever. And this was the chosen one, the anointed one that Israel had been waiting for ever since then. Yet over the years, the way they thought about this king, this coming king, was that it changed as history Changed As Israel continued to get farther from God, God continued to punish them through the form of exile. God would bring judgment on them by allowing other nations to come in and take over the promised land. And throughout the generations, these foreign powers that occupied Israel changed over time. And so the mindset that these Jews began having about this Messiah, this coming king, is that he was supposed to come and establish a forever kingdom. He was supposed to overthrow these foreign powers if he was going to do this, and he was going to give Israel back to the Jews. He's supposed to actually declare himself to be this Messiah, to grow into a great warrior and lead Israel into battle and take over who at this time was, as we know, the Romans. And he'd be riding a big white horse, you know, like a king should. However, Jesus didn't come riding a horse And the Messiah didn't really come declaring who he really was. He was actually just a small town kid. Uh, You knew his parents. You'd probably go to his dad to get a table made or a new shelf made. You know, oh, well, no one's special. And so the mindset that these Jews had was completely messed up when it came to the Messiah. And at the very height of his ministry, at, in the most glorious moment on earth that he had, he's, he's done all these miracles, he's done all these wonders, all eyes in Jerusalem are on him. He's about to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah, taking down his enemies. He's Jesus. He could have rode anything he wanted into Jerusalem. He could have rode a horse. He could have had a chariot. Heck, he could have rode a lion if he wanted to. How cool would that have been? Jesus rode a lion into Jerusalem. That's kind of how my, my mind works sometimes. Like a lot of people, like, you know, they have this uh, image in their head of Jesus as a lion. Because, I mean, you know, he's, you know, God's not dead and he's living on the inside and he's roaring like a lion. Yeah, exactly. Y'all you, you are really good. But, 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 but which is cooler, you tell me. The image of Jesus as a lion or the image of Jesus riding a lion. 
I think there's a clear winner, at least in my head, there is. Um, if I was Jesus' tour manager, he, he would have definitely been riding a lion into Jerusalem. But I'm not. He's Jesus. He's his own tour manager. Uh, he made that choice himself. But what did he choose to ride into Jerusalem that day? A donkey. Like, that's kind of crazy. He chose a donkey of all things. Now, let me learn you a little something about donkeys for a second. Donkeys are stupid. They're like, they're really stupid. Whenever I was growing up, the deer lease that we hunted on had hundreds of, well, maybe they didn't have hundreds, but there was at least 100 donkeys at this place. And, and the reason they had them was because there was two massive fields that they had covered about like 80 acres or something. And donkeys are really good about keeping all that tall, ugly, well, we called it goat weed, but, but like that ugly, like yellow, white stuff that grows in fields and just kind of spreads like wildfire. Well, they're really good at keeping that eight down. And, and th- there were so many of them because donkeys like reproduce like rabbits. Um, but when I tell you these things are so stupid, y'all, these things are so, like they would just walk out in front of your truck and you would have to physically nudge them with your vehicle to get them to move. They just did not care. The honking did not matter at all. And I remember when I was a kid, this one time, I picked up a rock. I was just like a little rock. And, you know, it's, you know, I was a kid. Kids throw rocks at things and all this. And at best, I just wanted to get a reaction out of this donkey, right? And so I pick up this rock, and, and I lob this rock at this donkey. And when I tell you, I hit, I nailed that donkey right between the eyes. And that absolute idiot did not even blink, not even blink, not didn't flinch a muscle. I'm telling you, that's how stupid they are. But another little thing about donkeys you may not know is that donkeys are actually good about keeping coyotes away. Did you know that? It's true. Donkeys are one of the few animals that are stupid enough that they will actually kill a coyote. Uh, They will actually gang up and will stomp a coyote to death. And, uh, I mean, they don't take any crap from coyotes. I've seen it myself. And there, you know, are probably several reasons why Jesus chose to ride a donkey into Jerusalem in that day. But I think it fits so well with what he was going into Jerusalem to do. You see, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he, he, he left almost all nice and kind Jesus at the door. And he became what my youth like to call an absolute savage. And if you don't know what that means, that means he's coming for you. He's about to start dogging on some folks, right? And the whole week that Jesus spends in Jerusalem, he just spends dogging on these priests and these Pharisees. Because look at the very first thing Jesus does when he goes into Jerusalem. Oh, 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 look back at that verse. He gets on a donkey. The people crowd around him. They shout Hosanna. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. Whoa. Where'd nice Jesus go? Like we've never seen this side of him at this point. But this is Palm Sunday. Jesus has less than a week before going to the cross. He means business. He came to seek the lost and heal the sick, but it's Palm Sunday. He came for the coyotes in Israel. It's Palm Sunday, and he's coming for those who are praying on the lost sheep, who know better than to take advantage of the people lower than them. 
And that's exactly what he does. If you continue reading the next four chapters, like I said, he's just straight going savage on these priests and Pharisees all week long. And I think there's a reason that Jesus was so fed up at this point with these guys by Palm Sunday. You see, what Matthew was trying to do in his gospel is that, in, in his gospel account, is that he's trying to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That, 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 oh, that's the big theme of Matthew. If Jesus ever fulfilled a prophecy, it, it, it got thrown in there. Matthew's like, oh, 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 like, what did he do? That's a prophecy. Throw it in there. That's, that's what Matthew was doing. He was putting together all these prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling. And so, and, 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 and I think that's the reason that Jesus comes at these priests and Pharisees harder than he does in any of the other three Gospels because they are the ones who knew the Scriptures the most. No one in Israel knew the Scriptures as well as these guys. No one knew the prophecies as well as they did. And if there was anyone who could tell that Jesus was the Messiah without him explicitly saying it, it was going to be them. And instead of accepting him as the Messiah and God's promised king, they chose their power, they chose their status, and they chose their sin over Jesus. Instead of being willing to admit that they were wrong, that God's coming kingdom looks a little different than they thought it would, and repent of their sin, they said, he's not the Messiah that we wanted. And they killed him for it. And here's where we come in, because often in our lives, we let sin creep in, right? And we can feel the Holy Spirit shaking his head. We can feel Jesus not approving of our choices and asking us to turn away from our sin. But what do we do instead? Most of the time, we still choose our sin over Jesus. We choose our pride over humility. We choose comfort over change. And it breaks God's heart every single time. Because no one knows your sin better than you do, right? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and none are without excuse. That means we know sin is sin, and every day we spend not actively turning away from that sin and turning to Jesus, we might as well be in the crowd of people that shouted, crucify him. There's three things I want you to get this morning from Palm Sunday. The first is I want you to see the message of Palm Sunday, the message of Palm Sunday. And the message is quite clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, but we must choose to accept him. It's pretty simple. We must choose to accept him. From the beginning of creation, all God ever wanted was to be with his people. He was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis says he, he talked with them and his presence was there with them. His presence resided among the nation of Israel in the Ark of the Covenant, Right? The, the, the tabernacle was supposed to be in the middle of the camp so that all the nations, uh, all the tribes of Israel had to be around it. When Solomon built the temple, God's presence resided in the temple. God's presence would, uh, would oftentimes in the Old Testament would fill certain people to do certain things whenever God needed them to do it. And now in the Gospels, we see Jesus. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. We call that the incarnation. The incarnation, God becoming man. When I actually had a seminary professor who would tear up, he would get choked up at the very idea of the incarnation because, because the power of such a concept overwhelmed him. 
I mean, the holy, almighty creator, God of the universe, humbling himself to a small, feeble little human body. The idea that God would do such a thing, that just the very thought of it brought him, that man, to tears. And the message of Palm Sunday is that, yes, Jesus is God's chosen one. And yes, he did come to establish the kingdom of God, but God's kingdom doesn't look like the kingdom of this world. The world says, blessed are the rich, remember? But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says, blessed are the proud, but Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The world says, blessed are the relentless, but Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. You see, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world have always been at war. And, 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 and we have to choose which one we belong to. Jesus talked more about the kingdom of heaven than he did anything else because he knew that, that too many times God's people have always had a problem with choosing the wrong side. We've always had that problem. And that brings us to the next thing I want you to see. I want you to see the mistake of Palm Sunday. And we actually already talked about it. The mistake is choosing your sin over Jesus. And the people of God have been making this mistake since day one. The entire Old Testament is about the failure of Israel. God gave them a simple command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? We hear that all the time, the, uh, 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 the number one commandment that Jesus gave us. And even when they failed at that time after time, God just keeps coming back with, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, if they would turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I would hear from heaven and, 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 and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. But still they choose their sin over Jesus time after time. I want you to listen to some of these passages from the Old Testament, I want you to hear how sad God is in them. You know, oftentimes we like to think about God as this, this invisible being that sits up in heaven and, you know, just emotionless. And, he, you know, he, he sits up there in judgment on us. But that could not be farther from the truth. He's called Father for a reason. And he very much has feelings and he speaks to us with emotion through his word. Oh, listen to this. In Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. He's like, I remember when you were young. And I remember when you loved me and you trusted me. Even though things weren't clear, you still followed me. Verse 5, he says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? He's like, what did I do? Like, like, what did I do wrong? Can you hear the sadness in his voice? What did I do wrong? That they left me. For it's, he says, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land. It made my inheritance detestable. Verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. He's like, not only have they turned away from me for no reason, but you tried to do things on your own. You tried to dig your own cisterns, but they're broken. They don't even, they don't even hold water. 
In Hosea 11, he speaks to the people of Israel. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the bells and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Those of you with kids, I know you've experienced this. You know what he's feeling right here. He's like, I remember when Israel was a child. I remember when, when, when I taught them how to walk. You know how you, you, know, you grab their arms and you kind of stand by them and just do the little waddle with them, right? You teach them how to walk. He's like, I remember whenever, I, whenever they would cry and I'd, I'd pull them up to my shoulder and just, shh, shh, it's going to be okay. I remember whenever they were hungry and they would cry and I'd feed them. God provides a Savior. The people praise him for it. And then he doesn't act the way they want and they start doubting and then they eventually reject him. The entire Old Testament is just like that. And that's exactly what's happening in Palm Sunday. Fast forward at hundreds of years later, Jerusalem, 33 AD. God incarnate is here. The Messiah is here. The Lord has spoken. And what choice do the Jews make once again? They choose their sin over God and they kill him. You see, Palm Sunday and and that whole week leading up to the cross is a microcosm of the entire history of the Old Testament. It's literally the Old Testament in a vacuum. God sends a Savior and they praise him for it. He doesn't act the way they wanted and they doubt him. And then they reject him. They praise him. They doubt, they reject over and over and over again. And that's exactly what happened in just one week when Jesus came. So fast forward 2,000 more years later. We have, we have all this. We have all these words from God, all these messages, all these signs. And what do we still do? We still make the mistake of Palm Sunday. And here's the difference between a healthy church and a carnal church. You listening? Oh, listen to this. I've been waiting to tell you this all week. Every single Sunday is Palm Sunday in a carnal church. Every single Sunday is Palm Sunday in a carnal church. A carnal church drags themselves in on Sunday morning. They roll out the red carpet for Jesus eventually once they wake up, and they say, you know, they want the Spirit here. They, they want to feel His presence. They get a little bit of fire to go do the week, and then Monday morning hits, right? And as the week goes on, all that fire fades, and then comes Sunday again, over and over and over again. In a vicious cycle, God's people still choosing their sin over him. But then there's the real Jesus followers. And what separates them is that they know the Messiah of Palm Sunday. The Messiah of Palm Sunday. Jesus was a lot of things to a lot of people. Right before he began his journey into Jerusalem, he's sitting around the fire one night with his disciples, and, 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 and he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to head towards Jerusalem, and he asked them, who do the people say that I am? Or, 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 or what are people saying about me? And they said, well, some people think you're a prophet. Some people think you're Elijah. Other people think you're John the Baptist for some reason, even though he was just killed. And then Jesus says, well, who do you think that I am, you guys? And then Peter replies with the first time anyone ever actually declared, you are the Messiah, the Son 
of the living God. Do you know him this morning? He is the Messiah. He is the promised one that God chose to die for the sins of the world so that you can be reconciled to him. Next week, we're going to talk about that reconciliation. We're going to look at what really happened on that Good Friday. I don't think enough people truly understand the greatest act of forgiveness in the history of the world. But you'll never know that forgiveness unless you know the Messiah who brought it. God in the flesh came to town on that Sunday 2,000 years ago, and they missed him because he wasn't what they wanted. And if I'm being honest, I think that's why he chose to ride a donkey. The most humble of all the animals he could have chosen, if only just to say, I may not be what you want, but I'm what you need. And that's always true for us too. So let's heed the message of Palm Sunday. And that is, if we truly know the Messiah of Palm Sunday, then we won't make the mistake of Palm Sunday. God in the flesh came through town that Sunday 2,000 years ago. And I hope you know him today. If you don't, I'd love to tell you more about him. We're going to have a time of response here in just a minute. If there's something that you need to bring to the Lord this morning, the altar is going to be open. You could pray right there where you are. But he's here and he wants a deeper relationship with you. It doesn't matter where you are in that relationship. He wants to go deeper with you.